Hello and welcome to the Harvard EdCast, a series of conversations with thought leaders in the field of education from across the country and around the world. I'm your host, Matt Weber, and today we're talking about trailblazers and online learning. And our guest today is very much leading this pack. His name is Anant Agarwal, and he's president of edX and a luminary in the field. Welcome to the EdCast. Oh, thank you very much, Matt. Um, I appreciate uh, chatting with you. I think at this point, Anand, a lot of people know what edX is and kind of get general ideas about online learning, but I don't know if they know the history of how edX got started and very much has roots in Cambridge. So edX definitely has uh, roots in Cambridge. Um, edX was uh, started by uh, MIT and Harvard. Uh, you know, MIT itself and uh, Harvard do have long histories of uh, various forms of uh, open content and open courses and so on. Uh, open course where it came from MIT in the early part of uh, uh, the previous decade. And so a number of us were experimenting with uh, all kinds of uh, online learning tools. Uh, a number of my colleagues have been working on it. Uh, I myself had worked on something called WebSim, which is a online circuits laboratory. And I encourage you to Google it. Google WebSim and Agarwal, and uh, you'll see a fun uh, online laboratory, which I created uh, almost a decade ago to experiment with, uh, you know, online learning. And uh, this was well before books. And um, there was a time when uh, two or 300 students would be uh, coming and doing these online lab from uh, all over the world. So a number of uh, professors, and you know, in, in this area and others were working on online learning. And all sort of came together in uh, 2011. Um, Harvard and MIT had gotten together in May of 2012 and uh, launched edX. Uh, they both invested a total of uh, $60 million into the effort and uh, began to offer, uh, created edX.org, and uh, we began to offer online courses to learners uh, all over the world. I think of all people to talk to, you are probably the best person to talk to, not just from a general uh, organizational perspective, but you also taught a class. Uh, you taught a circuits course to a classroom of over 155,000 people. I mean, you've taught classes in person. You've taught classes now online. Uh, what's the biggest difference in how did you as a professor enjoy or, or have issues with uh, the online format? So the online format is uh, you know quite a bit different from uh, the on-campus format. You know, I've always enjoyed teaching, uh, both uh, certainly on campus, uh, and online teaching was a very different experience, and uh, and uh, it was exhilarating in a very different uh, uh, in, a, in a very different way from uh, teaching on campus. So on campus, you know, you teach uh, to a small group of students, uh, small by MOOC standards, uh, a typical class that I might teach at MIT on uh, say the same core circuits might have uh, anywhere from 100 to uh, 300 students. And uh, I mean, clearly with a number like 155,000 that signed up for the first course that we taught on uh, edX, now the difference is very staggering. Uh, the 155,000 number is bigger than the, the total number of alumni of MIT in its 150-year uh, history. Uh, on campus, when you teach a class, you know, you teach lectures. These are one-hour lectures. And uh, there's not a lot of interaction with the students, although I do use the Socratic method, even in classes, asking questions as I uh, go along to keep the students engaged. And it's not uncommon by the end of the year to have, uh, you know, a, a relatively small fraction of students still showing up to lecture when students are talking, you know, talking with their feet. Online learning, really you are trying to teach in a way that the modern learner seems to want to interact with content. Uh, modern learners are very comfortable interacting with digital content and going online. They Snapchat, 
WhatsApp, Twitter, slash dot, you know, uh, mail and tweet and all kinds of stuff that we'd never heard of, you know, uh, less than, uh, you know, 10 years ago. And so with online learning, we're trying to create a learning experience that uh, really uses technology within learning. Uh, instead of having long lectures, you break up the topic into many small vignettes. Uh, each of them might be a few minutes to uh, five or 10 minutes long. And you intersperse these videos with uh, interactive exercises. And this promotes a style of learning called active learning, where as a student watches a video, then they try to, then they can go and try the hand at solving a problem and see if they really learned it. And if they haven't, they can go back and uh, watch the video and, and read about the content again. So it also, you know, enables, uh, begins to move in the direction of mastery learning where students learn about a topic uh, and convince themselves they know enough about it before they move on to the next topic. So it's really, it can be a lot more engaging. It's more flexible. Students learn at their own pace. Um, while in a lecture, you know, I go to lectures oftentimes and I sit through a class. And oftentimes I've lost the instructor after the first five minutes. And then I'm just hastily, you know, uh, uh, scribbling away, just taking notes, you know, not knowing what is going on. So the online is very experienced. Uh, it's a very different experience. As a professor, uh, the online experience can be very, uh, very exciting when you know that you're teaching to, uh, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of students. And uh, so uh, you're very careful about uh, anything you say or do initially. But as time wears on and you find out that fundamentally whether you teach, teach 100,000 students or you teach 100 students, uh, you can sort of get into the groove and uh, it's, it's the same thing. One of the really exciting parts is getting on the discussion forum where you have learners from all over the world and you're answering questions. Uh, and you see learners answering each of those questions from all over the world. That was a absolutely fascinating and a unique experience. You know, the am of the age where I don't routinely uh, Facebook and 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 before edX, uh, I did not tweet or or Snapchat or WhatsApp. And uh, it really got you know got me thinking about new ways that people communicate. And it was really exciting to be able to uh, discuss and talk to students all over the world. Yeah, I mean, you're you're really, I mean, edX has just grown just so much in such a short amount of time. I'm curious, you go out and talk uh, to, you came to the ed school very recently and gave a forum, and I'm sure you're going out and talking to the rest of the world about what edX is and the potential for online learning, and I'm sure you run into some skeptics. Uh, what's the most common misconception about online learning that you sort of have to answer at all these forums? Well, you know, first of all, uh, uh, you know, online learning is uh, is uh, is transformative, and whenever you have something that is transformative, you know, there will be debate and discussion, which is which is uh, I think uh, completely justified, and I think we need to uh, we need to have that as we learn about online learning, and decide what works and uh, what doesn't work. I think one of the biggest misconceptions is what people talk about. Oh, you know, uh, MOOCs seem to be a failure. So you had 155,000 students taking the course. But towards the end of the course, you had only 7,200 pass the course. So that's a, that's a pass rate of 5%. So you know, by any measure, that is an abysmal failure. So I think that's a, that's a misconception for many reasons. First of all, in terms of absolute numbers, 7,200 is a big number. You know, I would have to teach at MIT for uh, you know, 35 years before I could teach uh, as many students as pass the course in uh, one sitting. The second thing is that where universities like uh, you know MIT, Harvard, Berkeley, or uh, UT Austin, or others have a you know there's an admissions criteria, and uh, not everyone who applies is admitted to the university, and so you filter out the number of students that come in, and uh, and by the time they come in, 
uh, you also charge them a tuition. And so the students are filtered and they're also motivated to complete. However, in an online course, uh, we completely, you know, I like to call it flipping the funnel. You know, rather than having this funnel where you, you keep filtering out students in a traditional university, in the admissions process here, we flip the funnel and pretty much anybody can come in. You know, anybody can come and take the course, no matter what age, background, geography, uh, income status, simply doesn't matter. And so you have a lot of people who come in and take the course. And so, uh, you know, that is one thing. And the second thing is that uh, they really don't have any skin in the game. And so different people get different things out of the course. You know, some people are just tourists. They just want to watch a couple of videos. Now, if uh, 10,000 students watched, say, six videos in the course and did not complete the course but got something out of it, you know, I would not count that as failure. I would say that you know, they got what they wanted out of it. So what we've begun doing now is uh, is uh, to, to get a little bit more accurate, defining a, new, a newer metric. We define active learners. Uh, these are the learners that attempted at least one problem or exercise in the class so that it's an indication that they at least intended to uh, complete the class. At least that there's, there's a hint that they are trying to complete the class. And so if you look at that number, uh, that was only about 27,000. So 27,000 learners uh, attempted a problem or an exercise out of the 155,000. So that is about 15, uh, uh, one of the students, 15%. So now when you look at the 5% that passed the course, as a fraction of the 15% who we call active learners, then uh, the pass rate becomes more like uh, uh, on the order of, uh, you know, about 25 to 30%, which is uh, a more reasonable number, which is a much more respectable number uh, in terms of the pass rate. Uh, and still, you know, a lot of students don't have the right backgrounds, they found the course too hard. Um, in in uh, universities, uh, you know, the real the challenging universities have a really rigorous admissions test. You know, uh, MIT, for example, admits less than 10% of its students. So, given all of that stuff, uh, I think it's uh, it's uh, you know not a bad number if 5% uh, of the total number that register uh, passed the course. Now, that said, we're also working on ways in which we can retain more students, engage more students, and we're looking at a number of ways of doing that as well, and we are uh, we are trying those experiments. That segues nicely into uh, we actually posted a question last night on our Facebook page, the Ed School's Facebook page, um, uh, that you were going to be a guest on our show this week and said if anyone had questions for you to, to post them. We, and a lot of interest. And one of the uh, Facebook fans named Andy Hyde posted a question that said, uh, Anant, what is edX going to do to leverage existing social networks within edX, including your partnership with Google and potentially partnering with Google Plus to allow that the relationships within the online community to be leveraged within the already pre-existing social networks? So that's uh, that's a great segue. In fact, uh, the answers to my uh, uh, the answers to the previous question you asked are contained uh, herein. So we are looking at a number of approaches to. Uh, Increase student retention and, uh, and, uh, and, and social is a big part of it. I was speaking to a student who, uh, took one of the edX courses. Um, I think he took the uh, Harvard uh, CS50 computer science course and he was in, uh, uh, I think he was in, uh, uh Afghanistan. And, uh, he came and visited and, uh, he said that, uh, he, uh, dropped out of the course. And one reason was he felt really alone doing the course. And at which point I told him, hey, you know what? Uh, you know, there was a meetup group uh, meeting not far from where you were. And he said, oh my gosh, if I'd known that the meetup group was there, I would have gone and joined them and uh, I would have stuck through the course. So we are doing a number of uh, 
social uh, activities that weave into the fabric of existing social networks. So one example is Meetup. So we uh, encourage students to form Meetup groups on meetup.com. Uh, another approach is that uh, even in a discussion forum, uh, students form uh, you know bonded communities and they discuss things with each other on our forum. And we also really encourage them to connect with each other on Facebook and uh, you know talk to each other using Twitter and other approaches. We also encourage professors to uh, connect with the students through uh, Twitter. Uh, we also uh, we're working with Google as we speak on uh, on a number of technologies where you might imagine doing things like uh, video chat and uh, you know Google Hangouts and so on, where students might be able to connect with each other and uh, not just in meetup groups in uh, physical space but also in virtual space. And uh, you know, it, it won't be too far in the future where some of these things will happen. So one of the things we have to be a little uh, careful about here is that uh, many of the learners are from uh, various parts of the world. And in many parts of the world, some of these social networks are either banned or uh, they're not accessible to the students because of bandwidth or, or because of latency or you know, whatever other uh, uh, constraints. And so we need to be careful not to require that the students access these uh, networks and rather make it more of a, uh, a social experience that is completely uh, that is completely voluntary. Um, and students are also uncomfortable sometimes uh, when instructors ask them to go get a uh, an ID from an existing social network. Um, many of them have philosophical concerns about getting a ID from uh, from a big social network. So, so we have to be a little careful there. But, uh, but beyond that, I think bringing social into the classroom uh, is is a very, very good thing. Anand, I'm curious on a on a more personal level, with you as leader of organization, when when you go to work every day, um, you know edX is not that old. It it feels very entrepreneurial. It's very startup, but it also is relying on the sort of centuries old tradition of of institutions of higher education. As a leader, are you leading it as a startup, as a sort of college professor? This is almost a sort of new animal, and that you know sort of requires a new form of leadership. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is, uh, you know, I'm leading edX uh, like uh, a non-profit startup company. Now, we are non-profit, and, uh, but we like to adopt all of the good things of a startup, you know, being nimble, being execution-driven, you know, working, everybody working extraordinarily hard, uh, being open to new ideas, uh, taking risks, being extremely aggressive, uh, you know, trying to uh, shoot for the moon when it comes to accomplishment. So, uh, the number of things that are very startup-oriented. And, uh, and the people here are very, very passionate. Uh, the whole team loves what they do. And so these are all startup uh, uh, ideas, and, and we sort of create a startup culture. Uh, we are nonprofit. We are very mission-driven. And uh, uh, a large number of our team members uh, care deeply about education. So, uh, so, you know, coming into work every day, you know, certainly is uh, extremely exciting. Uh, you know, what's not to like? You know, we have a great mission, and uh, uh, we are a startup involved with education. Anant, I'd be remiss as my last question if I didn't ask you, where can people find out more about edX and, and the courses that are available uh, in the upcoming months and, and weeks? Oh, well, it's easy. You can go to uh, edX.org, edX.org, where we have some of the best courses uh, from the best universities around the world online for free. You can take these courses for free, and uh, all you need is a will to learn and an internet connection. I hope to see you there. All right. Anant Agarwal, president of edX, and in my opinion, one of my favorite guests on the Harvard EdCast. Thank you so much for being on the show today. My pleasure. Thank you very much.
This has been the Harvard EdCast, a production of the Harvard Graduate School of Education. I'm your host, Matt Weber. Thank you kindly for listening. The Harvard Graduate School of Education, working at the nexus of practice, policy, and research.